All right, all right. My name is Levi. I don't think I've said that yet. If you're newer and visiting, I would love to chat with you, get to know you. If you have any questions, we always say this a lot. We're not a perfect church, but we serve and worship a perfect Savior, and that's what it's all about at the end of the day. So we are going to talk about that perfect Savior. But before we do, I want to call attention to something that many of you have called attention to, to me, about me. Actually, at the conference, at, at the Fellowships Conference, uh, I've, I've been mentored by Matt Boyers. He's the senior pastor of Crossroads Church up in Wauseon since I've been in high school. Godly guy, love him. He's like kind of a second dad to me. So he's introducing me to some of his new staff that he's, he's brought on or whatever. And he does what, what more and more people are doing that, that have known me earlier on in life. I had a, had a hat on. And so he's like, oh yeah, Levi, he was the first resident that Crossroads had, and, and we love him, and this, that, and the other thing. He said, hey, hey, do me a favor, take your hat off. I'm like, okay, here it goes. And he's like, I knew him before Levi had gray hair, or whatever, right? And y- y'all are doing that. Like, wow, your hair's getting pretty gray. I know, I'm graying. And some of you are like, mm, I don't think you can say graying anymore. You're just gray, right? I get it, I'm gray. At least I have my hair, which is more than some of y'all can say. Terry, looking at you, right? You pull it off, though. You and Caleb both. You look good. You look good. The Lord knows that I got an ugly head, so he, he lets me have the hair on it, but it, it's great. Now he's like, why are you talking about this? You said you're talking about Jesus. We're talking about your gray hair. Here's my point. I am getting old. I am not as young as I once was, and that is never more apparent to me than when I hang out with young people right? And say, you're young. It's like, yeah, but I'm not as young as I once was. So when I'm hanging out with the teenagers, and honestly, Seth and Amelia, our our resident, love them. They're crushing it, doing a great job. Rachel and I had them over for dinner a few months back, and we joked after we left that in in the midst of some conversation, they said a few things that Rachel and I, we did not acknowledge, right? We just smiled, and I was like, I don't know what that word means. I have no idea. Yeah, okay. Uh I don't know what we're talking about anymore, right? Those of you who are over 35 know exactly what I'm talking about. You hang out with the young people, and they start using slang. It's like, I don't know. And most of us are, like, not willing to ask because we don't want to not be cool, right? We don't want to not be cool. And so I thought, for all you old people out there, that I could bring you up to speed a little bit and educate you on some of the slang that is happening. So I'm going to make you cool this morning, okay? That's the goal. Here's one slang term that I recently heard that I have no idea what it means. So the teenagers in here, be quiet. Don't answer. I want to know, anybody who's over 35, got some gray hair, what does no cap mean? No cap. Anybody? You were here at first service. You don't. All right, what's it mean? What? That's bogus? Yeah, yeah. So it means, so I I was talking to one of the kids about going to Cedar Point. I'm so excited about going to Cedar Point. No cap. I was like, what does not wearing a hat have to do with, (laughs) what? No cap, right? It means no joke. No joke. I'm not being disingenuous right now. I'm being for real. No cap. No cap, right? There it is. You're, You're up to speed a little bit on some of that. All you parents in here, I give you a new slang word, and all the kids are like, Dad, please never say that in front of my friends, right? Right? Here's my point. The language I, our kids use, they're speaking the same language as us, but sometimes we just don't understand them. That's because language changes. It changes in sp- slang. This has been true throughout the history of humanity. Old people get old, and the slang, they, they don't understand. But it's not just true of slang. It's true of regular words as well. 
Flo Damon and I were talking two weeks ago. Flo, I didn't ask you to share this, but it makes you look good. So (laughs) we were talking a few weeks ago (laughs) and he was sharing how we've been talking about, you know, sometimes when you read scripture, it's helpful. It's helpful to define words. So you use a dictionary and we're not reading it like a novel. We're chewing on the word. We want to get it into our heart, think deeply, meditate on it. And sometimes you can use a dictionary to look up different words. I was talking to Flo about his quiet times that he's having and, and doing this practice And he will tell you that if you're not, you should because it's awesome and you can hear from the Lord on a regular basis. So I'll put that plug out out there for you. But he said he's been irritated with using Webster's online because it's revised recently. And sometimes the the definitions that are given are just kind of flimsy and weak. So he said, I found a dictionary from 1828 that was put together by Noah Webster. And that has been awesome. And so I want to show you how language has changed over the years by looking at two words. The first word I want to look at with you is marriage. Now, what is Noah, written in 1828, Noah Webster, what is his definition of marriage? Here's what he says. Here's what he says. The act of uniting a man and woman for life. Wedlock. The legal union of a man and a woman for life. In case you missed it the first time, for life, he says, marriage is a contract both civil and religious by which both parties engage to live together in mutual affection and fidelity till death shall us part for life. Marriage was instituted by God himself. This is in the dictionary. For the purpose of preventing the promiscuous intercourse of the sexes. Wait, that's not acceptable? For promoting the domestic domestic felicity, that's an old word that means thriving, for the flourishing of humanity, and for securing the maintenance and education of children. And to that I say, let's go, Noah. (laughs) What a definition. What a definition. Praise God for that. Here's the dictionary, modernized and revised for 2022. What is marriage? The state of being united as spouses, no reference to gender, in consensual and contractual relationship recognized by law, an intimate or close union, apparently, until it's not. Until it's not. That's a pretty striking difference, isn't it? Language changes. Changes significantly sometimes. Let's look at one more definition. Female. Female. What does Noah say a female is? Here's his definition. Noting the sex which produces young. (laughs) (laughs) Wow! That is so simple! What's the 2022 definition? Of or relating to or being the sex that typically has the capacity to bear young or produce an egg, or having a gender identity that is opposite of male. It's different. It's different. In Noah Webster's day, there was not any confusion as to what a woman is, but today, we struggle to, uh, what's a woman? It's a mystery. It's a mystery. We can't even define what a boy and a girl is today. Here's my point. Whether it's slang or just words in general, language changes, and those changes can be incredibly frustrating. 
It makes communication hard. I find myself having, in conversation, having to ask really defining and clarifying questions all the time. Hey, I heard you say this. What did you mean by that? Hey, you, you said marriage. What do, you, what do you mean? What do you mean? Because I don't know what the definition is anymore. What, when you say man, when you say woman, what are we talking about? What, I, I, gotta, I don't know. I don't know, because we don't have a common def- definition for our words anymore. Changing language is really challenging. It's funny in slang. It's difficult and challenging when we're talking about words that matter. Change in general is challenging, isn't it, right? Think about this. Think about this. You're having a conversation with your spouse or your boss, a coworker. You make a plan. You feel really good about that plan. The next day you set out to put that plan into motion, and your wife or your husband, your boss is like, no, 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 no. we're not doing that anymore. Like, that's what we talked about, right? What, what happened? What changed? It's frustrating. It's frustrating. The potential for change can and does create havoc in our lives. Friends, can you imagine what life would be like if God changed? What if God changed? We would be in trouble, Barb. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Thankfully, he doesn't. He doesn't. The God of the Bible is unchanging, and because of that, he is the safest place for your soul to be anchored. The safest place. Now, I could tell you that you should believe that because the Bible tells you so, and that would be a great reason to do it, but not everyone believes in the Bible. So we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. We're not going to start with scripture. We're going to start with logic with logic, right? We live in a world where everybody says, we're so scientific, we're so logical, we're so reasonable, so I'm going to meet that where it's at. We're going to start with logic, all right? We've called this series None Greater. None Greater. And here's why we called it that, because we believe that there is none greater than God. There's no one greater than Him, okay? So, Some of our scientific community, the secular world, when they talk about the world and how it came into being, they want to talk about a big bang. And you know what? I'm actually okay with that. I believe in science. I think science and reason can actually go together. And we can measure. We know that light is expanding out through our universe. We can measure that. And so the the reasonable and logical answer to that is that all that is started at a focal point and then exploded and expanded out in creation. We can measure that. I'm good with that. Scientific, reasonable to believe that that when creation happened, it exploded and went out. Awesome. What is hard for me to swallow about that is when science says, well, it just happened by chance. That, I could handle that if the world were infinite. If we knew the world had no beginning, then I could say, okay, yeah, mathematically, that's possible. If we have an infinite possibilities, then if enough times you put enough monkeys in a room and give them, give them enough time, eventually they're going to write Shakespeare. I could handle that. But we know, we know that the world had a beginning. And we argue about whether it's a thousand years or a million years. I'm, I'm less concerned about that. What I, what I like about that, though, is we know that the world had a beginning place. My question is, what caused it? What caused it? What caused it? God. The God of the Bible. He's the first cause. It's logical to believe that he caused creation to come into being. And it's it's logical to believe that it wasn't just something, but that it was a person. Because when we look at the complexity of our world, how complex 
it is. We can look at our life and we can say, my house, my car, everything that's around me, it doesn't get more complex and better as time goes on unless there is someone to care, design, someone intelligent to make sure that that happens in an orderly way, right? We can make it better. And so we can look at the world and we say, it caused, it didn't cause by chance because it's not infinite. It had a beginning. Mathematically, it's silly to believe that it just was infinite and it just happened. Like the probability to believe that it just blew up and something from nothing, that it like mathematically it takes more faith to believe that than it does to believe in the God who caused it. Secondly, the complexity of the world would lead us to believe that he's intelligent, okay? That he's an intelligent creator that stands behind all of this and all that, that exists in life. So we, we can know all of this. Another, another logical reason to believe in God is that laws exist in nature. We have laws as a country. How did those laws get in place? We have a lawgiver. We have lawgivers. If that's true in the realm of government, why is it also not true in the realm of nature? It must be true. If we have laws of nature, there must be someone who is giving those laws in place. It's logical. It's logical. So I would say, based on those three arguments, they have fancy names, but you don't need to know them. Based on those three log- logical arguments from reason, I would say it's, it's actually unreasonable to not believe that there's a God. It's, not, it's illogical to not believe that there's a God. So I think based on those arguments, we can say, yes, there is a God. We have to ask the next question. Well, if there is a God, what is he like? What is he like? And without even opening the scriptures, we can know two things about him. He must be perfect, and he must not be able to change. He must be unchangeable. Think about it like this. If God is the supreme being, if there is none greater than him, right? If he's the first cause, there's nothing before him. Everything that was created comes out of him. He's the first cause. He's intelligent. If he exists, he must be perfect. Because if there was someone that created him, then he wouldn't be God, and the thing that created him would be God. You see how this works? It's logic. So if he's perfect, that also means something else. By logic, it has to be true. If you have a perfect being, that means they cannot change. You can't get any better than perfect. And if you get any less than perfect, you're not perfect anymore. It's logical. God, he exists. If he exists, there can be none greater than him. If there's none greater than him, he must be perfect. If he's perfect, he cannot change. It's logic. Now, all of us like to think that we're really logical and scientific. That's humanity. That's how we're governed, right? Well, I can tell by your faces, y'all are about ready to go to sleep, right? How many of you are super inspired? Wow, God's so awesome. I can't wait to go live for him, right? Bueller, right? You're all falling asleep. It's because we are not primarily logical or reasonable beings. Humanity is driven by our passions, by our desires more than anything else. And our desires are broken, church. Our wanters are broken. We don't want there to be a God. Because if there is, we don't get to change as we see fit any longer, right? It's the owner versus manager thing. We don't get to choose how to do church. We have to ask God how he wants us to do church. We don't get to choose how to do marriage. We have to ask God to tell us how to do marriage and on down the infinite examples, okay? We don't want that to be true. And so rather than speak to you in logic, because you're not primary logical, it's illogical to not believe there's a God, but that's not compelling because we think more with our hearts than we do with our heads. So rather than speak to your heads, 
I want to speak to your hearts now. And I want you to know that you should want there to be a God and you should want there to be a God that doesn't change. You should want there to be a God that doesn't change, right? We live in a culture that is constantly changing. Everyone's saying, live your truth. Live your truth. And so we change things. We change language. We change the rules. We change the laws. We change definitions. We change our plans. We got people trying to change their sex. It's chaos. It's chaos. It's exhausting. And so while we could keep on talking about logical reasons why you should believe that there is a God who is perfect and does not change, I don't want to talk about logic anymore. I want to talk to your hearts. This world's a hot mess, isn't it? On our best days down here, life is hard and confusing, ever-changing, and that change is frustrating. Trying to find our identity today is exhausting. In the world where we choose to be our own anchors and, and try and figure it out, it's exhausting. I pray for our teens trying to walk through this trying to figure out who they are. The world's got so many options to tell them. This is who you can be. It's like being in a vast ocean tossed back and forth by raging waves. Sometimes up is down, down is up. It's scary and unnerving. Our truth vacillates with our passions and our passions are a fierce storm of change. And this is, church, why we need to love and worship the God who never does. Because in this raging storm of change that is human passion, God exists outside and above all of it, and he does not change. His truth does not change with the passing of time. He is an anchor for us in the storms of life. I want you to listen and be encouraged to the words of James. To the words of James. He speaks into this. He says, Dear brothers and sisters from James 1, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. How? Because your joy is not tied to the vasting, shifting waves of human passion. Your joy is tied to the ever-present God that never changes. He says, Consider it an opportunity for joy when you suffer because your joy is tied to an anchor that never changes. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For God is making you into something new and better. When your endurance is fully developed, he says in verse 4, you will, have a per- you will be perfect and complete. You will need for nothing. If you need wisdom, he says, ask our generous God and he'll give it to you because he's the source of all wisdom and he never changes. He will not rebuke you for asking, but when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Why? Do not waver, he says, for the person with divided loyalty, the person with the broken wanter, the person with the shifting sands of human desire and emotion and passion, he is like an unsettled wave of the ocean that is blown and tossed by the wind, unstable in all he does. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world unstable in all they do. They lack peace, they lack rest, because their souls are not anchored to the God who does not change. But if you would anchor yourself to the God who does not change, listen to verse 12, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him, those who have anchored themselves to him in relationship. And remember, remember this, When you're being tempted, do not say God is tempting me. Well, why not? Because God is never tempted to do wrong. 
He never tempts anyone. He's perfect. He can't not be perfect. Temptation comes from our own desires, which will entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So, don't be misled by what? Your feelings, your desires, your wants. Don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father who created all the lights in heaven and everything that is. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word. And we, out of all creation, became his prized possessions. James affirms the truth, brothers and sisters. God does not change. He is the source of wisdom and truth, and to those that come to him, he provides and he will be an abundant anchor for them amidst the storms of our fluctuating desires and emotions. He will enable us to endure the changes of life with joy. He will never tempt us to do evil because he is perfect and it is not within himself to do so. Human nature is the problem. And if we refuse to anchor ourselves to the unchanging God, we are guaranteed to have a life that is like living in a vast ocean at the mercy of the waves. Changing and disordered desires. But that doesn't have to be your fate. You don't need to live a chaotic and unstable life. You can live a rooted life. You can live with peace and hope. We can live anchored to God's truth and his promises. If we're confused, God says, come to me. I'm the great lawgiver. I set it up. I kind of know how it works. Come to me. If you want to know how to have a, a beautiful life, I'll show you. I'll tell you. If you need wisdom, I'm not going to smack you upside the head and say how stupid you are. I'm going to say, yeah, come here. Let me tell you because I'm generous because I love you, because you are my prized possession. I created all of this for you to enjoy it. Friends, if you can't wrap your head around the logic, you should at least want there to be a God who is perfect and does not change. Because if there is, you and I have a refuge that we can run to, an anchor that we can run to in the chaos of this uncertain world that we live in. Listen to the author of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews says there was, uh, there was God's promise, Hebrews 6, verse 13. There was God's promise to Abraham. Since there was no one greater to swear by, God took an oath by his own name, saying, I will certainly bless you, and I will multiply your descendants beyond number. And then Abraham waited patiently, and he received what God had promised. Do you know how he could wait patiently? Because he knew God never changed. He stayed true to his promises. He could be trusted. Verse 16. Now, when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given us both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have a great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone on in there for us. 
He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Here's what the author of Hebrews is saying to us this morning. Because God doesn't change, because he doesn't lie, you can trust him. You can run to him for refuge. And when you do, you can have confidence and you can have hope. Let me ask you this, church. Which is better, to live life with hope or to live life hopeless? The answer is obvious, right? You can't really live with no hope. You don't live. You just kind of survive. You just kind of survive. Let me illustrate this to you from economics. What if the dollar was unstable? Some of you are like, it is kind of unstable. What if it was more unstable? What, what if you could never really trust that it wasn't going to change? That you, you never really could trust and know that it's going to be worth something? you would be hopeless, right? How could we conduct business in a society where we lacked faith in the dollar because we couldn't trust and depend that it wasn't going to change? You would go to work and you would always be wondering, is this worth it? Am I gonna get paid anything? Am I gonna get paid anything of value? Do you see how this works? That's why it's important that God never changes. If God changes, you and I have no hope. The best we have, the best we have is, well, You only live once, so I guess try and just eke out an existence down here and then die. Just try and, some people get dealed really good hands, some don't. You just try and take what you're dealt, make the most of it, and then you die. That is incredibly hopeless. And that is not the story that God has invited you into. He's invited you into a story with hope because he's promised our future and he does not change. He does not change. Some of you might be like, Levi, I get it from the logic. I get it from from the Bible, but how, how can I know that God does not change? That. The cross. That is how. Because God created you and I to live in relationship with himself. And then Adam and Eve chose to rather than anchor themselves to God's unchanging word and his unchanging character, they decided to anchor themselves to their feelings. And they said, we don't really know if we can trust what you said. We like what we feel and what we think. Man, look at that piece of fruit. Doesn't that look delicious? I would sure like to have that. That looks like it's going to give me life. They anchored themselves to their feelings. And everything that was good and beautiful broke. Adam and Eve flourished. They thrived in the garden. They walked with God in the morning. And it was amazing. They got their identity and their love and their affection. They were naked and unashamed, completely bare before the Lord and lived in perfection. And it was beautiful. And they said, God, we can't trust you. We like what we feel. And so they followed it. And instantly after they followed it, a curse came upon all that is. Humanity, relationships, creation, work, all of it. And the character of God said, I'm just, but I am infinitely loving and I cannot let this stand. This is not what I created my people for. They are my prized possession. And so right after the curse in Genesis 3, there's a beautiful promise. Aeons, eons, thousands of years before Jesus, God said, I am going to do something about this. I am going to send one from Eve who will be perfect and who will crush Satan. Crush him. His heel will be bruised, 
but he will be victorious. And everyone who looks to my son, who looks to the one who is victorious, will be saved. They will be saved. And then the people waited. And they waited. And they waited and they said, How long, Lord? You promised. We think you're true. We think you don't change, but we're not certain. God said, trust me. You can believe me. I do not change. My word is perfect. It will prevail. And many thousands of years after he made that promise, he made good on it. And he sent his son born of a virgin. The God of heaven became a man and he lived the life that you and I could never live and he died the death that you and I deserve. We deserve that. And he said, no. If you anchor yourself to me, I love you and I will not give you that because I love you. Not because you're worth it, but because I made you and I say that you're lovely and if you anchor yourself to me, I will not give you this. I will put it on my son. And that's exactly what he did. He took the shame that you and I deserve to bear. He took the punishment that you and I deserve to bear. And he says, if you trust me, if you trust that I will never change, if you come and have a relationship with me, then you can have a hope. You can have a hope that everything that you're going through right now, the suffering that you endure, and it's hard. And I want you to hear this, church. Jesus Christ understands what you're going through. He lived it. He gets what it's like to live here. And because he is no longer dead, because he's alive and reigning, he says to those that come into me, all the suffering that you feel, this is the hope, all of it will pale in comparison to the weight of glory that will be revealed through you because of me. It's worth it. It's worth it. And folks, I want you to hear this too. This idea of heaven that we have about just floating on a cloud and singing kumbaya infinitely, I don't know about you, but that sounds kind of like hell to me, not heaven, right? Everything that is good and beautiful about this world, all the creation, all the work, all of raising kids and exploring and going into the mountains, all of it is just going to be magnified and made even more great and grand because we'll get to do it with Christ. We will no longer see dimly as in a mirror. We will see clearly the God who never changes ever and ever and ever for the rest of time. Glory, joy, unending love, no more sorrow, no more pain, It's logical to believe that there's a God. But it's not just logical. You should want it. Because that's who you were created to know. Let's pray. Let's pray and ask him to help us know him. Father God, it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe. There's a lot of bad. There's a lot of sin. There's a lot of brokenness. Our wanters are broken. I thank you for the story that you've given us in the Gospels of the man who comes and acknowledges the reality. It's hard to believe. 
He says, Jesus, I, I know who you are or who, you, who at least you claim to be. I've seen your miracles. I've seen your, heard your, your authority that which you teach. My child is sick and I believe that, that you can heal. If you can, if you can, will you, will you heal my child? Father, I love that story. I, I love how you move towards that man in mercy and you confront him with the truth. If I can, you ask him, you, you remind him, listen, I'm the God who never changes. I created it all. I know you. I know what's going on. I know all. I never change. And yet, Father, because you never change and you've always been loving, you've always been merciful and kind, you meet that man in his doubt. You confront him with the truth and the reality, but you do so in love. And I love that you've included this story in the Bible. The man says, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would know your unchanging will, your unchanging love, your unchanging justice. And I thank you that you're big enough, that you're broad enough, that you're deep and wide enough to allow us to come with you with our doubts and say, Lord Jesus, I want this to be true. I believe. Help my unbelief. Help our unbelief, Lord. Help us love you. Help us know you as the God who is perfect and does not change. For your glory and our joy we pray. Amen.